Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Hedden. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just, you know, be in part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio as part of the job. When I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we stumble upon some answers together. One of the people I've turned to repeatedly for answers is my friend, Dr. Michael Grandner who became my friend after I basically gave him no other choice. He's a behavioral sleep medicine specialist, the director of sleep and health at the University of Arizona. He writes med school textbooks. He's the real deal. And when we sit down, we rarely have an agenda anymore. We just kind of start talking. And in this episode, it's fascinating because almost everything we talk about in this week's show revolves around one central theme, and that's this. Humans would be amazing sleepers if it weren't for all the things that humans have done to screw up their sleep. It's a fun one. Welcome back to Dr. Michael Grandner. All right, so you know the drill by now. This is what, your third or fourth time on the show. Um, I have to begin with the same question, even though typically the answer from you is usually the same. How did you sleep last night? I actually slept really well. One thing I'm liking, I like about um, when the weather gets warmer here in Arizona, the sun comes up really early. I'm generally not a morning person, uh, but when the sun starts coming up really early and it starts warming up a little early, it actually is harder for me to sleep in and I get a little more energized earlier. So I end up getting a little more of my day. So I actually appreciate it. Now, is that strictly a circadian rhythm thing or is that more psychological? Probably both. Um, it, it, there's definitely a circadian component. I mean, when I moved from um, where I went to college in Rochester, New York, to San Diego for graduate school, I mean, that's I realized how sensitive to fluctuations in light I really was uh, going from a place without light for, for a lot of the year. Um, and and I've just realized how sensitive I am to it. So I try and and structure things where I can embrace it rather than fight it. And, and again, not being a morning person, um, I, I, I'm usually very slow to start, but this morning was, it's, it's been starting to get warmer and, and lighter earlier. And rather than try and fight it, I'll just go to bed a little earlier and just start my day a little earlier, a little more refreshed. So I actually feel great this morning. It's interesting how much the sun plays a role in everything. It popped up on an episode uh, that we did a few weeks ago with uh, Dr. Celine Bestian from the Canadian Sleep Society. Isn't who was she great? Even, who was even talking about the idea that where you put your desk when you're working from home can impact your sleep because you should try to put your work from home desk somewhere near a window so that you're still getting sunlight and it can help your circadian rhythms. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way. Our, uh, as much as we like to think about it this way, our, we did not um, evolve in isolation from the universe and nature and the earth and the world, right? We were, we were part of it. And, you know, and, and part of how it works is we, had, we are part of our environment and, and our evolution from unicellular organisms and pre-cell organisms um, existed in an environment. It wasn't in isolation, you know, and if, if you can think of life on earth, you know, um, continents have come and gone, ice ages have come and gone, Pangaea came and went, dinosaurs came and went, we've had, you know, asteroids and all kinds of things happen. But 
the one thing that's never changed is the sun rising in the east in the morning and setting in the west. And, um, you know, the, the life on Earth figured out a long time ago that rather than pretend that that doesn't exist, to use that, to, to react to it, to adapt to it. So it's like if you're, um, if you're building a, um, a house and you've got a giant boulder in the middle of your living room, you know, don't just pretend it's not there. You, you live around it. You, you know, maybe you hang a picture off of it or something like you, you, <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't pretend like it's not there because it, it, it just is. And um, that's sort of what we've done with light. We've where with the sun. And so we have a whole biology and I say us, but I mean, like you see this in microscopic organisms where they exist in a world where there's light and there's dark. And that means something. It's not random. And we and, and the, this idea of we have also these rest activity rhythms that often coincide with the light dark cycle for for diurnal animals like us. It's that we're active in the day and asleep at night where you have nocturnal animals where it's the opposite. Either way, it's using whether it's light and dark to enhance survival. So, of course, you know, we have a fundamental biology around the sun. I mean, the sun is always there. It's always been there. It always will be there, at least, you know, as long as I'll be around. And, um, and, and I think, and I just think there's something very poetic about the fact that, that it's ubiquitousness is just a fundamental part of how we're built. Where does that fall? And I know that circadian rhythms are right in your wheelhouse, as are so many other things, it would seem. Um, where does all the talk of circadian rhythms fall with the conversation about polyphasic sleep? Because I see people talking about this all the time on Reddit and wherever else on the internet, where basically their theory is, you know what, two sessions of four hours of sleep uh, is just as good, if not better, than one session of eight hours of sleep. Is there? Talk to me about what that even is. Sure. So polyphasic sleep. So polyphasic is just it's one of these times in in science where you have a very fancy sounding word for something very simple. And I know we talked about this like in in, in another thing about like the hippocampus of the amygdala. You know, there's sciency words. But polyphasic. All polyphasic means poly means more than one, and phasic is was is a phase. It's more than one period of time. So what all polyphasic sleep means is that you you don't get all your sleep in one big chunk. It's split up into multiple chunks. And the truth is nobody gets sleep all in one chunk ever. I mean, unless you're under anesthesia, I mean, the typical adult wakes up 10, 20 or more times per night. That's actually totally normal. Your sleep is, is by nature, not totally unconscious and disconnected for the entire sleep period. But that's not really what people mean by polyphasic. What they mean is breaking it up on purpose into discrete chunks. Instead of one big opportunity that is then somewhat interrupted, you're actually spreading out the number of opportunities of sleep you're getting. And so one way to look at this is one form of polyphasic sleep is a siesta, as an afternoon nap. You're getting most of your sleep at night, but maybe a little bit of sleep during the day. Um, there, there's, to my knowledge, there is no evidence that this is in any way a bad thing. And if anything, it might be beneficial. Um, 
But so then there's another kind of, of splitting up sleep. Um, oh, but I should should say that if you're taking naps during the day because your sleep is really bad and you can't even stay awake, that's more a sign that there might be something wrong uh, where the nap might be helpful, but there might be an underlying problem. But if you're otherwise well rested and you want to take a little nap in the afternoon, go right ahead. Um, the another kind of, of, of biphasic sleep where you're splitting sleep into two is where you take your nighttime sleep and you split it into two chunks where you get a first sleep and you get a second sleep where um, where maybe you'll go to bed at, you know, say 10 o'clock. You wake up at two in the morning. You might be up for a half an hour, an hour, two hours, three hours. Then you go back to sleep for another hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. Um, and I, there, there's a lot of talk about this as being like a thing. Um, but honestly, lots of people do this naturally. Um, I have a lot of older people in clinic, for example, who have an awakening at two, three, four in the morning, and they're not going to get right back to sleep. And what many of them do is they'll they get up and they'll read or do whatever. And then they'll go back to bed in a couple couple hours and then catch another hour or two of sleep and they feel great. You know, where so maybe, you know, sometimes you don't you just don't have enough gas to make it from point A to point B. And rather than have a sleep interruption, you know, you plan out a pit stop. So it's like, you know, it takes about five hours and change to drive from Tucson to San Diego. And we've made that drive a bunch of times. And um, you can't get there on one tank of gas. It's just not going to happen unless you're, you know, driving an electric car. But that's another story. So. <laughs> Either so, if you leave if you leave Tucson with a full tank of gas, you're gonna start running close to empty. Like it, there's a spot, um, you know, in California, like right around Imperial County, where you're up in the mountains, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're 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 this very hilly area where you're burning lots of gas, and there's like no gas stations. So you start panicking because I can't. Not of course that this has ever happened to me. Of no, course, but no, never, never. But so then you start panicking, like, oh crap, I'm running out of gas. Where's the gas? And so you're you're hoping to make it to a gas station. That's very stressful. Now, after learning my lesson the first time, you know, we'll stop in Yuma for lunch, on our way. The you know we we've still got a solid half a tank plus of gas by the time we get there. But we plan the pit stop. It's a decent sized place. It's a great place to stop. Some good food, good gas stations. And then we fill up and we make it the entire rest of the way, no stress. And I think people need to think about their sleep that way, where some people, they just don't have enough gas or sleep pressure in this case to carry you through a whole night with just small awakenings. Sometimes they need a period of awakening during the night where they build up some extra sleep pressure by being awake, fill up that, that sleep gas tank. They don't need to fill up a whole day's worth. They just need just enough to carry them across the rest of the night. And many people I know do this, have no problem with it. And, and there's even um, a lot of work done looking at historical documents, like Roger Eckrich is, is, became famous for writing about this in his uh, At Day's Close book, um, about going through these journal entries of people around the turn of the century and before and pre-industrial and, and agricultural societies where you know they'd wake up with the cows, but they'd also go to bed a bit earlier, but they're not sleeping for 12 hours or 10 hours at night, they would sleep for a while, get up, write letters by candlelight or do whatever they did, you know, check the house. Remember, this is also tending the fire, like whatever. And then they'd go back to bed. And, you know, it, it's 
that the awakening happened isn't necessarily the problem. It's is it disruptive and stressful? So either way, you're stopping for gas. But are you stopping for gas under duress and stress and, and trying to make it the whole way and failing and, and, and dealing with the stress of failing or just plan out a pit stop? Know you're not going to make it the whole way and, and be less stressed about it. So that's one form of biphasic sleep. The other thing that people are talking about, and you alluded to this, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because um, because as interesting as it is, it's actually a relatively easy answer, is these people who are talking about these multiphasic sleep opportunities where they're, they're talking about if I get, if instead of getting like sleep in any kind of solid chunk, if I break sleep up into smaller parts scattered around the day, that's better. Uh, it's because it's more efficient because everyone wants to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, there's any sleep person looks at this and they, they don't even believe that people are actually doing this. It's, it's, it's sort of so extreme. And we already know that this is going to fail. Um, but like people want to be more productive. And there's lots of people talking about there's a whole culture around this. And how do you manage it? And, and, and they, all these schedules have like names and like, do you do the this schedule or the that schedule? They're all made up. None of them have any real good science behind them. If anything, the science behind them shows that um, this is this is more akin to uh, torture than boosting your productivity. Like your body's not going to like, like, so there's a, there's a, there's an experimental procedure called a 90 minute day. And what you do is, is it, you put them in a lab and under time isolation conditions, you have lights on for 60 minutes, lights off for 30 minutes, lights on for 60 minutes, lights off for 30 minutes. You do this across 24, 48, 72 hours. And the reason we do this is that your body cannot acclimate to that schedule. Um, But the idea is you get eight hours of a sleep opportunity out of 24. So you're not actually the total amount of sleep you get in 24 hours might be might be a bit less. But you're you're it's mostly trying to bring out your natural 24 hour rhythm because it's not going to be impacted by whether you just slept or just woke up because your sleep is like is just like spread out all across the day. So this 90-minute day protocol, um, it's really hard for anyone to do. I mean, it's, it's, you can do it for a few days. you got to pay people a lot to subject themselves to this. I'll bet. And they, and they do not enjoy it, and, and it is really hard. And the body doesn't love it either. You can't do it for extended periods of time. So that's what I think of with all these people with these like micro nap sort of schedules. Like, yeah, you can hang in there for a day or two or a few days maybe, but you know, that's not what we were built for. Sure, sleep can be a little fragmented, but you're not optimizing sleep by doing this. What you're doing is you're setting yourself up for sleep deprivation and sleep fragmentation. And, you know, sure, you might get a little sort of like a high off it for a couple of days because you're sleep deprived, but it's, it's really not optimal. I mean, people ask me, what is the optimal sleep schedule? And if you look at the data, the optimal sleep schedule is... You know what? Evolution's pretty flexible. Humans are pretty adaptable. There's no one perfect sleep schedule. It's not like it's not like there's no there, there's no healthiest food, right, in the world, you know. There's 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 no perfect sleep schedule. It looks like what the body wants is you want to get probably between 7 to 8 hours of sleep out of 24. You want the vast majority of that to be at night, but some sleep during the day is probably totally fine. You want it to be in no more than two to three big major chunks. More than that, people tend to feel sort of fatigued and tired or that their sleep was choppy and not restorative. 
But other than that, if you're sleeping all in one chunk or in two chunks or maybe two chunks in a nap, that's probably fine as long as most of that sleep is in your biological night. Um, and then people are also trying to optimize their, their sleep stages of like, oh, I want to optimize my deep sleep or I want to get maximal REM sleep. And, you know, that, that's another thing where, where this is where like a little knowledge about sleep stages um, just makes you look a little silly because there, there's no evidence that there's such thing as optimizing sleep stages for performance in that way. If anything, you're just disturbing the system. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry to know- dump all that on you. <laughs> No, no, it's good. It's just that there's a lot of places to go from there because the thing, okay, so let's look at biphasic, for example. So if I'm going to bust up my sleep, let's say hypothetically, I'm going to bust it up so that I get five hours at night and I take a three hour siesta during the day, which I mean, that just, the idea of that just sounds obscene to me, but let's, let's go with the the idea for a second. Um, Doesn't that mean that for, for, you know, a culture where sleep hygiene is something that has to be drilled into our heads and, you know, no screens for at least an hour before bed and don't eat this and don't blah, blah, blah. Don't we then subject ourselves to a scenario where we have to do the whole sleep hygiene routine twice a day instead of just once? And then doesn't that become, from a practical perspective, unmanageable? Yeah, I mean, sleep hygiene isn't supposed to be a burden. Sleep hygiene is supposed to help you. So, um, so like, you know, if and, and a lot of times sleep hygiene, you know, so when I give talks about sleep hygiene, there, there's a shtick I borrow from uh, one of my mentors, Michael Perlis, and he talks about sleep hygiene is the Ten Commandments, right? And um, as and we treat them like they're written in stone, delivered from on high, and 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 they're these these rules: thou shalt not drink coffee within ten hours of bedtime, and like all this stuff. But at the end of the day, sleep hygiene—they're not rules. What they are, they're they're guidelines. So, um, and they're guidelines that are meant to help, not to make life harder. So, like for example, if you want to sleep, if you want to go to bed, sleep for four hours, then get up for a couple hours and go back to sleep. You know, it doesn't mean you have to sit there in the dark for a couple hours. Actually, there's even evidence saying that even if you turn on lights, you know, you're you you might be able, especially if you're still in your biological night period, turn on lights. You don't need to be in the dark. Just don't, you know, maybe you don't want to make them super bright, but, you know, you don't have to sit there in the darkness. You don't have to, like, not eat any food. You don't have to, you know, like you. Here's a good example. One of the one of the tenets of, of sleep hygiene is keep a regular schedule seven days a week because your body doesn't know what weekends are. Does that mean if you don't keep a perfectly regular schedule, your sleep is terrible? No, it just means it's like you should eat regular meals at around regular times, but you don't have to. And, and you can vary from it a little bit and it's not going to be a huge deal. But if you're having problems, you know, you might want to tidy it up a little bit. So um so, for example, if you're getting up in the middle of the night and you're going to be up for a couple hours and then you're going to try again, do whatever you want, um, especially if you're able to fall back asleep, then, then you're OK. Like it doesn't mean you can't um, do anything. So I, I've got people who they'll wake up, they go for their walk in the morning, they'll have breakfast, they'll check some emails, then they'll go back to bed and then they'll sleep for another hour or two and then they get up and do the, go to the, do the rest of their day. I mean, it's, it's okay. Like sleep hygiene are not the 10 commandments. Sleep hygiene are, are there to help you. They're 
most of what sleep hygiene is, is did you know that these are all barriers to sleep? If they are in your way, look out for them. If these are not barriers, then they're not barriers for you. Interesting way to think about it, because with as much out there and, and, you know, we follow each other on social media and I know as you've seen me tweet a million different articles, which yeah. are basically the same sleep hygiene rules repackaged. And, and I guess it's because the whole sleep hygiene, th- I don't know if we're having trouble getting the message through to people. Like how many different ways do you need to be told no screens um, before that message finally sinks in? Mind you, guilty as charged on, on that score. Which I think is the point, which is why you keep seeing this and why it's not really super effective because there's only so many ways you can tell people to eat their vegetables. Um, <laughs> right? Right. And, and we all know that we need to eat our vegetables. And some of us are good about it. Some of us are less good about it. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. Um, but, you know, and, and when so nutritional advice, you know, hasn't really changed that much. It's, you know, eat a balanced diet. Don't eat too much of processed stuff. Um Eat, eat more, eat more vegetables and more fruits, maybe, but especially more veggies and, and natural foods and you'll be fine. Um, but that's it's so hard to say that over and over and over and over and over because really, you know, everything else is just sort of window dressing and or, or corollaries or versions of saying that. And sleep is similar. The thing is, when you think about it this way, every human since humans, um, pretty much every single day of every single life has slept. Yeah. You know, and, and this isn't, this isn't supposed to be that hard. Like we're, we're built to do it. And so how do we do it right? How do we do it better? Like, look, you know, you, you already, you were born with all the tools, you know, the only barriers are mostly things that we create. You know, we made our own barriers. We made screens at night. We made sleep optional at night. We did all this stuff. And, Really, all of sleep hygiene is, you know, how do we take the fact that we have all the tools to sleep totally fine, um, biologically on average, um, and yet we have an environment that sort of set us up to make things difficult. How do we bridge those two? How do we how do we get from how, how do we how do we reconcile these two sets of things? It's not that we're bad at sleep. It's that, you know. We, our, our biology figured out sleep a much a really, really long time ago. We didn't really have a problem with it um, until we, we, put thing, we put ourselves in the way. And, and most of sleep hygiene is, is very much about getting out of our own way. Um, so, so it's not about, there's nothing wrong with sleep. It's really about us. And it's about, well, how many barriers are you going to have in your way? And, and you get to choose them. So, so screens is, is a barrier that many people choose for, for many reasons. And some of them, those are legit where, where people have a really hard time winding down or distracting themselves. And so they need something. I mean, so, you know, who am I to say you're, you, you must put all your screens down. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a barrier that we create for ourselves. As we are, are uh, sitting having this conversation, um, because I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that people might be listening to this episode sometime in 2023, for all I know, because everything on the internet lasts <laughs> forever. So we're recording it uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, um, specifically COVID-19, which is messing with everyone's sleep. It's messing with everyone's dreams. It's, uh, it's, it's taken the way that tons of people live their lives and turned it on its head. 
And one of the resounding messages that keeps coming through in the middle of all of this is, yeah, those basic things that you do to stay alive, eating and sleeping, et cetera, um, try to prevent those from getting too heavily disrupted. Is that the thing that you're seeing the most of right now is that people are, are whether it's difficulty falling asleep, whether it's difficulty staying asleep, whether it's just the stress of everything that's coming with this pandemic, is, is sleep probably one of the biggest challenges for people? One thing that's really interesting about this whole pandemic situation is that pretty much every single person I've seen or spoken to, um, sleep-related, not sleep-related, kids, adults, their sleep has changed because of this in one way or another. Like, this is something we're all going through. Maybe, maybe everywhere in the world. Maybe not everywhere. Maybe most places in the world. Most people have their sleep changed in some way by this. Um, and I think there's, there's something really cool about that, that we're all sort of examining our relationships with sleep in one way or the other. So there's a few patterns of things that I'm seeing. One is that um, we're having an experiment in school start times and commute times where all of a sudden people, a lot of people don't have to wake up quite as early as they used to. So they may be able to sleep in. Maybe that's a good thing for some people. Maybe it like gets their day started too late for other people. Well, and it's funny that you say that too, because I don't I, uh, hold your thought for a second yeah. because I was talking with a friend about this this morning. Um, TV viewing data is emerging that suggests that based on, and it's not a particular channel or anything like that. It's just, here's when people are watching TV. That has shifted. The, the amount of viewership between six and eight in the morning has dropped off sharply. Um, and the amount of viewing between 11 at night and, and two in the morning has shot up rapidly, which suggests exactly what you're saying. People are sleeping in in the morning and they're feeling, uh, you know, thus empowered to stay up later at night, at least yeah. based on our TV viewing habits. Yeah. So that's one thing. And there's good and bad there. You know, for some people, it's bringing them closer to alignment with their own natural rhythms, which might be a good thing. For other people, it might be making them more lethargic and, and disrupt their rhythm. So one thing I'm seeing is this is the shift. This other th the other, another thing I'm seeing is a lot of people are sleeping more than they were before. Um, and if you're someone who was carrying a bunch of sleep debt around with you, that could be a good thing. Um, another thing I'm seeing is people having a hard time disconnecting at night. Um, and they're, they're just sort of following everything. And, and this is a perennial problem anyway, but I think it's sort of been brought to the forefront here with all the numbers and news and, and commentary and, and all this stuff happening at night. And I think um, that I, I find myself having to remind people quite often that um, the news will still be there in the morning. If there's information that you need and that it's important Knowing it at 10 or 11 o'clock at night is not going to help you. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. You knowing what the new numbers are for today at 10 or 11 o'clock at night doesn't help anybody. Um, it'll be the numbers will be there tomorrow. They will wait patiently for you to wake up and check on them. Um, they're not going to feel bad. Um, so, you know, why are you doing this? And, and it's sort of facetiously like what why is this helpful to you? In what way is this helpful? And we start trying to find a way to troubleshoot that because people feel like that it's, it's sort of like 
the social media feed where, where it never ends. Like there's never an end to the discussion. There's never an end. There's never a, okay, everybody, we're done now. See you tomorrow. Like it doesn't ever happen. Um, instead, it's like there, it, there's constant new discussion and it just sort of keeps you hooked into it and, and it becomes hard to disconnect. So I think people sometimes need to. So what I tell people to do sometimes is just set a bedtime alarm instead of a wake up alarm, set a bedtime alarm, set a now is the time to power down your large electronic devices alarm yeah. um, where if you're doing anything that you're going to need to wind down from, start that process now so that by the time you're ready to go to bed, it's at a normal time. It's at a time that's comfortable for you rather than a time where you've, you've long overshot where you should be going to bed. It's so funny that you say all of that because for people who discovered, and I'm aware that there's a bunch of them, people who discovered the show for the first time last week uh, when we had uh, meditation teacher Jeff Warren on, um, he, you know, one of, the, one of the legends in his circle uh, is, is a, a meditation teacher by the name of Joseph Goldstein. And Joseph Goldstein, when you get him talking about, um, you know, that spiral that people get into where meditation comes in handy to sort of combat it, where your brain just won't shut off because you're thinking about this and thinking about this. Um, apparently, one of Joseph's key phrases that he's been using for decades now is, is this useful? And so... You know, it's a great for, one. For, yeah. So for people who, uh, you know, hear you talking about that and are already uh, in the meditation game and have a strong practice, the idea of is this useful when you apply it to the 11 o'clock news uh, makes absolute sense. And, and you know, as, I mean, as a person that's in the media and has been in the media for 40 something years now, I think about that and I wonder if, geez, I wonder if we should be, you know, tailoring the news content late at night so that we're not inspiring insomnia with some of what's out there. Well, I don't know if the advertisers would agree with that, but um, I, I really like the idea of is this useful? Is this helpful? Because um, what it does is it is it is it asks a concrete question where it at, where and and plays on our idea of what am I doing this for? It's not a, do you enjoy it? It's not, does it, how does it make you feel? It's not a, is this interesting? It's, is this actually helping you in some way? What is it helping you with? And then, you know, and then that forces you to confront the utility of it. And, 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 it, and it sort of strips away the emotion out of it a little bit um, and, and helps you see what it is that like helps you make a more clear, thoughtful, de uh, um, a decision. I remember, you know, when I was, when I was in training, um, it learning how to do psychotherapy in grad school as a, as a psychology graduate student, this was one of the things one of my supervisors kept asking me of when I'm in therapy, we're watching tape of these recorded sessions and she's watching what I'm saying and how I'm responding. And she's like, so what do you think would be helpful to say at that point? And, and I'll never forget that was her question. And it wasn't what's the right thing to say or what was insightful or whatever. It was, how are you being helpful to this person right now in, in saying that? And, and there was a concreteness to it. There was a specificity to it that really helped orient me to help me figure out how to make the right decision. It wasn't about making the right choice. It wasn't about choosing among all my options and making sure I interpreted everything correctly or whatever. It was about, am I being helpful right now or am I not? And if I'm not, what do I need to do to be helpful? And I think people should be asking themselves this when they're stuck in these loops and patterns 
of of whether it's media consumption, watching TV, eating, whatever it is, it's is this helpful? How is this helping me? And then, so then the, the next step is if what you're doing is something that you know you probably shouldn't, but it is helpful, that's actually where the real meat of change is. Because then you could start saying, okay, what about this is helpful? And is there another way to meet that without doing this? So we do this with, with um, addiction treatment all the time. So, you know, most successful addiction treatment doesn't focus on like, well, smoking's bad. Well, everyone knows smoking is bad. So how is smoking helpful to you? For some people, um, it helps them lose weight. For some people, it helps them socialize. For some people, it gives them a break from work. For some people, it's a, it's a way of coping with stress. Those are the ways that smoking can be helpful. So, all right, smoking is helpful in these ways. Is there another way we can meet these needs and be helpful without having all the negative consequences? And I'd say the same thing about, about what's happening at night with people. Is doing this helpful? Or in what ways is it helpful? And is there another way we can get those needs met in a way that doesn't have all the negative stuff attached to it too, like daytime tiredness and fatigue and stress. Interesting. Yeah. The idea of is going to bed, knowing the numbers at 25 after 11 at night, going to somehow make you better, smarter, whatever, than if you found them out at seven o'clock the next morning. And obviously the answer to that is no, the only thing it's going to do is keep you awake at night. Um, This is why I love on uh, getting into all this stuff with you. You and I could do like hours. Um, Okay, so one more thing involving you on my sure. radar, and then I want to hear what's on your radar. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm excited about next week's show because our guest on next week's show is a friend of yours, as so many people on this show are. Um, Julie from Project Sleep is our oh, guest Oh, yeah, next she's week. awesome. Yeah, and, and I know that you and she were uh, just part of a commentary that was written about narcolepsy. So without pulling too much of the rug out from under Julie on next week's episode, I guess the two things I would say to you about that is, uh, one, what can you tell me about it? But two, here comes a curveball that you're not expecting. What should I ask Julie about narcolepsy that probably wouldn't occur to me otherwise? Sure. So the the impetus from this actually came from a, a common colleague of ours, uh, Fabian Fernandez, who's a faculty, who's a circadian uh, researcher here at UVA. And he teaches the, 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 the sleep course and, and has gotten, um, and has gotten a, a lot of, of expertise in narcolepsy. And the thing about narc, and so this was his idea. So I want to give him credit for writing this, but um, the thing about narcolepsy is that, you know, for, if people remember the H1N1 um, epidemic a bunch of years ago, sure. a thing that happened with H1N1, and you can ask you can ask Julie about this. Um, this will be a cool thing to ask because she'll tell, be able to tell more of the story, uh, more from the the patient side. But there was something fascinating that happened in the science where a bunch of people who got the H1N1 vaccine got narcolepsy from it, and and everyone was like, what? I thought narcolepsy was a genetic condition that had to do with uh, underdeveloped hypocretinorexin neurons. How the heck can you catch narcolepsy from a vaccine? Um, and what that did is that triggered a whole bunch of really interesting science. Um, a lot of it led by uh, Emmanuel Mignot at Stanford, who's sort of the leading narcolepsy researcher in, in the world. Um, and he basically discovered that 
we thought narcolepsy was really a genetic condition, but it's really kind of an autoimmune condition where your body starts targeting these cells and, and killing them and then they don't grow back. And so what the vaccine did is it is it accidentally in, in addition to being a vaccine against H1N1, it sort of tricked the body into um, attacking these cells um, that created uh, orexin, which then led to people developing narcolepsy out of it. And so the commentary we wrote was, you know, narcolepsy is, is one example of how, how sleep-wake conditions are tied into all these neurotransmitter systems that are intricately connected with the immune system. And... Um, that that was that this the whole H1N1 story was an example of where a, a virology, immunobiology, immune system story ended up teaching us something extremely valuable about a sleep disorder that we probably not would have not learned otherwise, at least not nearly as as quickly. Um, and it, it gave us some really important lessons into sleep wake, which is tied with all this stuff. And so really our commentary is that as we're collecting data uh, on all these vaccines and, and all this stuff that people are testing, um, how interesting would it be, first of all, to be aware that this, you know, there, there's no reason to suspect that, you know, a, a COVID vaccine will cause narcolepsy. There's, there's no reason to suspect that as far as I know. But the point is, we don't know. Um, and we don't know all the different ways that sleep and immune system are interacting and what what the virus might be doing to sleep wake, especially as there's new evidence that it has effects in the brain um, or even what the treatment would do. And so that's that's this piece that that's the gist of this piece that we wrote, at least that's me from the scientific perspective. But we wanted to make sure that she was involved in this conversation because she's she you know, she's one of the most articulate and vocal advocates of, of sleep disorders in general, but especially narcolepsy. I mean, she was on the patient side when all this was happening. So she could she could uh, it would be great to ask her what it was like to hear this unfolding and see this unfolding. And how did how did this molecular biology um, scientific starting out as a footnote of an observation that became this whole field of inquiry. What was her experience of this from the patient side? Um, how did she hear about it? And then what, is, how, what does that mean about her understanding about this condition? Um, but that's where this, this piece sort of came from, of uh, sort of asking the question of, you know what, we have no idea what this is going to teach us yet, but let's keep our eyes open. Um, so that was that. Uh, but yeah, no, she's she's great. I mean, honestly, the the thing that I would ask, if if I were you, I would ask her um, first of all what it was like as a non person in the sleep field to sort of enter this world, and sort of realizing that you know here's a health condition that I think is important, um, and and sort of opening up to all you know how much of this is really out there and how much of a need there is. Um, and I would also ask her to tell her story. She's got a great story um, about connecting her own experience to a sleep disorder that she didn't at the time even know she had, and then being able to get that treated. I mean, she, she, she explains it very well, but I think it's important for people to hear because there's lots of people walking around who have sleep conditions where they don't really think about it that way. They think of, oh, I'm dragging across the day and well, that's life, you know? But there might actually be reasons for it. Um, so anyway, so that, that's what I would think about that. 
Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, okay. So yeah, I want to, I want to pick your brain for a second and, and see sure. what's going on out there. Either what's the next hot thing that you're working on? Cause you know, you're a, a busy researcher and, and all of that. <laughs> um, but what's the stuff that's crossing your radar that's got your attention right now? So, um, right now, like I've been, you know, I've been very focused on, getting all my students to finish out the semester in one piece, getting the projects all moved online, getting the IRBs done, getting the clinic all moved online, you know, seeing all the patients via telehealth and working all that out um, and all this stuff. Um, but one thing I'm very interested in is um, how this whole situation is impacting people who don't have the same safety nets that I do, for example, like me, you know, my job goes on, you know, my grant deadlines don't change and that makes things more stressful and everything, but at least I have a job, you know, at least, I, you know, even if I'm not going to work, at least I can get work done during the day. And even though I've got kids at home and that can be stressful and everything, at least, you know, I've got other family members here. At least I'm not cramped into like a one bedroom apartment. You know, I, I'm really wondering how, um, how this is impacting, you know, people, who are actually getting consequences from this and how we can help people who are who are in these stressful situations, you know, make it out the other side a little better. So from my perspective, it's all right. Can I help you be sleeping a little bit better so you're a better able to manage the stuff during the day? You know, whereas someone else might be like, how do you eat a little bit better? How do you manage your time? Um, so I'm really interested in sort of the real world implications of this and how this is how people are dealing with this in families. Like so so some families are having family Zoom calls and some families are not. Um, I'm also really interested in, in this in this impact of this natural experiment of we've now removed school start times and commute times for a lot of people. What did this do to their sleep? Is this helping? Is it was for for years we keep talking about that this is one of the downsides of, of society where we have to get up early to go to work because it takes a while to get there and we're starting all these kids too early, you know. And there's lots of data on all this stuff, um, but I wonder how how this has changed people's sleep patterns, um, even with the stress going on. And then the third thing I'm really interested in is is you know everyone's talking about their their Corona dreams, you know, and everyone's talking about having more dreams and more vivid dreams. And is it because we're actually sleeping in a little later? So we're getting more REM sleep. Are we getting more REM sleep? Is it because we're all going through this thing and we're all processing in a different way than we were before? And we have to process all this stuff. Is it because our sleep's a little more fragmented and we're having more awakening? So we're remembering more dreams. And what does that even mean? You know, is this changing people's relationship with their sleep, with their dreams? And, and when we come out the other side of this, will this change how society sees sleep? Are we going to have more flexible time at work? You know, because everyone got used to working from home and realized it wasn't the end of the world. You know, how is this going to change our relationship with flexible time and with sleep? So those are the things that have been on my mind. Are we? Yeah, and and so to put a bow on on that whole idea, and yet bring it around to things you brought up multiple times, is is this experience going to be the demonstrative evidence that we need to see that we need to remove some of the barriers that we've put in place over the years? I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially if we can get some big data, like you were talking about the TV data, that is fascinating to me because that's real life. That's real world data 
on not just a, a, a select sample of 20 people or 100 people, but this is what society is doing. And you can't really argue with that. I mean, you can, there's lots of noise in that signal, but at the end of the day, that's what's happening. And I think um, as more sources of big data uh, come out, we can start piecing this story together. Well, I'm glad that we've got oh, people Oh, but there like- is something else I do want to mention. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. No, there, there is one thing I do want to mention, and this has been on my mind this week. And because you're giving me the, the privilege of a microphone, I want to say it. Um, so we're, I'm in Pima County, Arizona, and Pima County um, looked at their numbers over the past 10 weeks during during this pandemic. And when they, what they saw urged them to release a public health announcement that pretty much all the health providers in the county got. Um And what they showed was that if you look at the five weeks at the start of the epidemic, like February into beginning of March and then into like the middle of March and then like the five weeks ending with like around April 12th, 13th, 14th, which is when they started looking at the data and it took them a little bit to compile it. What you found was the suicide rate in Pima County more than doubled. Um, And I think this is. I haven't seen any data published on this. Maybe there is. I haven't seen it. I know there's been some commentaries written um, by mental health people saying this could be, a, unfortunately, a perfect storm for this because some of the biggest triggers of suicide risk are things like job loss, sudden relationship stress, illness. Um, and th- there's a lot of things going on right now. And poor sleep. You know, poor sleep triples your risk for, for suicide risk. Um, this is some of, the, some of the research that we've been doing. Um, and, and, and others, of course. And so when I saw those numbers, I, my first thought is people need to know about this, um, that if they need, if you're going through a really stressful time right now, the great thing is most mental health providers, their doors are still open, at least electronically. Like I'm still seeing patients virtually. Um, most of the mental health providers I know, almost all of them still are. So if you're really struggling don't be afraid to reach out just because you don't want to go to a doctor's office right now doesn't mean you can't get an appointment with somebody. So if this is really happening, if this is just a fluke that's happened that happened over the last month or so in Pima County, fine. Um, but if this is something that's that's more of a public health issue, we have no idea. This is this is we don't know yet. I'm trying to see if I can get a hold of other data to, to look at it. But um, I think people out there need to know and and that um, if there if this is a really hard time for you, Uh, know that there is help out there for you. It's one of the reasons why I wish we had started calling it physical distancing right out of the gate instead of social distancing. Because I keep hammering away on this idea that, look, now is the most important time for us to have our social game in order. Um, Yes, the physical has to be there, but there's no reason at all why anybody should be alone or feel lonely or any of those things right now. There are ways to get in touch. In fact, you could make the argument that this has given people more opportunities to do a better job connecting than ever before. But I'm fully cognizant of the fact that that's not necessarily the truth for everybody. And those are the people that we got to maybe spend some more attention on while all this is going on. For sure. Michael, I can't thank you enough. Uh, every time it's a treat. And and I, I honestly, to peek behind the curtain for a second, I never have to have anything planned when I sit down with you because I know <laughs> that wherever it's going to go, it's going to be fun and interesting and I'm going to end up learning something. So I appreciate it. That's great. Yeah. And, and I look forward to uh, hearing next week's show.
There you go, Dr. Michael Grandner, the Director of Sleep and Health at the University of Arizona, among other things. Uh, all the information on Michael is in the show notes and on our website at thesnoozebutton.com, where you'll also find a ton of helpful links, ways to leave us your feedback. You can rate and review the show. Uh, you can make a donation if you want to help keep the show commercial free and help keep the doors open. And if you're crunched for time but you love the information, remember nine-minute versions of every episode with an entirely different podcast called The Snooze Button Express, where we take, for example, the 46-minute conversation that you just heard, and we whittle it down to eight minutes. Yeah, you don't get everything, but you get just enough to get a flavor of some of the information that's in there. Till we get together again next week, again, a fascinating episode coming with Julie from Project Sleep, all about narcolepsy. Can't wait for this one. We'll see you next week, and until then, hey, get some sleep, would you? Yeah.